2: And welcome back to the X-Zone, everyone. My name is Rob McConnell, coming to you from our studio in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Worldwide toll-free, 1-800-610-7035. Email X-Zone at x TV.com On MSN Messenger, x TV at Hotmail.com. And our website, dot com. ExoNation, my guest this hour is Len Kasten. And Len is a New Age researcher and freelance writer. He has been involved in UFOET research for over 25 years. He is a former member of the National Investigation Committee on Aerial Phenomenon, NICAP, and the Mutual UFO Network, MUFON. And he is the president of the American Philosopher Society. He has been a feature writer for Atlantis Rising magazine for 14 years with 52 published articles, and he lives in Casa Grande, Arizona. And, uh, Len, I want to thank you very much for joining us uh, tonight here on the Exxon. Welcome. My pleasure, Ron. Tell me, Len, how did you first become interested in UFOs and ETs?
3: Well, I had an experience while I was in the Air Force that... um, I think it got me into it, but it it got buried in my subconscious. I didn't even realize it myself. I sighted a a UFO from my barracks window in the Air Force, and uh, at three o'clock in the morning, I ran to the window, Mm -hmm. just in in time to see it go by. And in fact, I I pressed my face to the window and watched it disappear out over the Gulf of Mexico. And uh, shortly thereafter, I got very sick, flu-like symptoms. Which, as you may know, is a sure sign of uh, being abducted. Yeah. So evidently, that's what happened, and that got buried in my mind. And next thing I knew, I was joining NICAP a few years later, and then uh, and then UFN. And uh, I was obsessed with the subject from that point on.
2: How did you have any any trace evidence of your abduction?
3: None whatsoever, but the next morning the tower operator told me that I should go report it to the UFO office on Mm -hmm. the base. I had never heard of a UFO. I didn't know what it was. Right. And sure enough, I did find it, and there was a captain there with a multi-page questionnaire. So I knew this was serious, and he wasn't at all rocked by my estimates of the speed, which turned out to be about 18,000 miles an hour, roughly. That didn't faze him at all.
2: What year was uh, this? In in what year did this happen?
3: That was in the late fifties.
2: Wow. And whereabouts in the United States was this area, Was this base where you actually saw the UFO?
3: That was at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida, northern Florida. It was about a, it was about a thousand feet away, and it was almost at eye level, and it was glowing uh, gold green phosphorescence, and silent.
2: Did anyone else on the base uh, see the same sighting as you did?
3: Yeah, they had four UFOs on the radar that night hovering over the end of the runway. That's what thats what motivated me to go tell wow. my story to the uh, UFO office, because the, what I saw was coming from mm-hmm. the end of the runway.
2: Len, stand by. Uh, you yes, and I very, have. Uh, what's up? Lynn, stand by. You and I have to take a two-minute commercial break. We'll be right back. Exo Nation. Uh-huh. Len Kasten is our special guest. He is the author of the Secret History of Extraterrestrials, Advanced Technology, and the Coming New Race. His website: www.et-secrethistory.com. That's wwwet secrethistorycom Dot com. My name is Rob McConnell. This is the Exxon. We're talking about UFOs and ETs this hour. And um, if you'd like to give us a call, toll free 1-800-610-7035. Email exon at exxonradiotv.com. On MSN Messenger, TV at hotmail.com. And our website, www.exxonradiotv.com. Len Caston and I will be back on the other side of this two-minute commercial break. Continuing our conversation of UFOs and ETs here in the X-Zone. Don't go away.
0: We all have that friend who wakes up early to go get everyone McDonald's breakfast but the rest of us sleep in. This is your sign to thank them. do but I wish some
2: Donation. Len Caston is our special guest. His website is www.et-secrethistory.com. And you know, uh, Len, I, I was thinking during the commercial break. You know, here it is, going back to 1958. You're on an you're on an Air Force base. You see a UFO at the end of the runway. You you go and make a report, finding out that the air traffic center has was actually you know uh, targeting four UFOs. You go to a UFO office on base and you're given this multiple-page questionnaire by a captain and you start suffering with the flu-like symptoms that we've heard from other people who have had abduction experiences. Looking back to 1958, how does that make you feel? What do you think about when you think about that day? And have you had either sightings or contact with aliens since then?
3: Well, it took me a long time to realize what happened. It took years. But while I was in the Air Force, we were right near the beach, and we used to go out to the beach at night. Mm -hmm. And I would lay on the blanket looking up, and I could see them going out out over the Gulf of Mexico, a lot of them. So it wasn't that unusual. You know, Eglin is an experimental Air Force base. And, uh, by the way, that's where the the Jimmy Doolittle uh, pilots were trained for their mission over Tokyo, way back in... uh,
2: is, is is that anywhere near Gulf Breeze? Yes, it is. Not far at all. All right, because the do you think there's a connection between your sightings and the Gulf Breeze sightings?
3: Because I will be. I'm not sure, but it's probably about 30 miles away. Hmm. We, used to go, we used to go to Gulf Breeze. We used to go to Pensacola right. Recreation. So, uh, right near there, yeah.
2: What kind of questions were, was, were you answering in the questionnaire that the captain in the UFO office gave you?
3: Where did you first see it? Where did you see it disappear? How much time elapsed? What color was it? What sound did it make? All the stuff that hmm. you would expect.
2: Was this, so, was this office part of Project Blue Book?
3: Uh, undoubtedly it was, because 58 would have put it squarely right at that point, yes. So hmm. he was probably a Blue Book... Representative. That's my guess now. i look back on it.
2: So tell me, once again, this event happened in 1958. Here we are in the year 2010. Is it your opinion that somehow it was your UFO experience that motivated your interest in metaphysics?
3: I have no doubt about it, because I became obsessed with metaphysics mm. to the point where I would haunt the library at uh, Virginia Beach, the uh, Casey Library, which you may know is probably the second only to the uh, the, the uh, Philosophical Research Society in LA. Uh, it's a huge library, and uh, that's all I did. I would go there day after day and read whatever I could. So there must mm-hmm. have been a connection because uh, while I had majored in uh, psychology in college, right. um, this was kind of a this could be a strange offshoot for me. So it wasn't expected.
2: Have you had experiences, sightings, uh, missing time since 1958 when it comes to UFOs or ETs?
3: No, but several people that I now have um, in Connecticut. While I was living in Connecticut, I I knew several people. I knew a lot of the uh, UFO people in Connecticut. uh, Betty Andres and Luca, Mm -hmm. Tony Gonzalez. There was a whole bunch of them there. John White, Larry Pusset. We were sort of of a little group there, and a lot of people were having those experiences, especially Betty Andres and Luca, whom you may have heard of. She was the subject of the book The Andresen Affair by Raymond Fowler.
2: During your research of the UFO ET phenomenon and the people that you met, is there a common thread were were there any similarities in your in your psyche, in your physiological makeup? was there a can, was there similarities between your sightings?
3: Well, uh, I have to say yes. Uh, there was a lot of missing time. Mm-hmm. Uh, my associates all reported missing time, and uh, I began to see that as a common common phenomenon in sighting. As for me, my experience, I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning, so I would never do that normally. That would tell me that I had been awake earlier, and when I ran to the window, to look out, I must have known what I was going to see. Why else would I have done that?
2: What did that UFO look like?
3: It was just phosphorescent glowing uh, orange... Gold and uh, green, and at night, and it was—it uh, was no shape that I could discern. Other than mm-hmm.
2: that, other members of the Air Force that were on the same base as you, did you share the experiences? Had other people had UFO experiences on the base?
3: Other than being directed to go to the UFO office, mm-hmm. no, no way. I didn't. Needless to say, it was all top secret, I'm sure you realize that, and highly compartmentalized.
2: So t- so, t- so, tell me, how were you able to integrate the UFO phenomena into your metaphysical framework?
3: Well, looking back now, I see exactly what happened. In, in, I found myself voraciously gobbling book after book at the library, in mm-hmm. ERE and I, I began to realize that the... Uh, the contactees in the fifties, the Damski people, the Menger people, and Tesla—they all talked about reincarnation and karma. Uh, especially Damski, he was told by Orthon that uh, we all reincarnate. I think that's what triggered it. That's what got me going. And uh, there was a connection. I could see that. You could, it was impossible to understand the phenomenon unless you understood the uh, the uh, philosophy and uh, behind it. How they knew a lot more about our spiritual nature than I mm-hmm. did.
2: So, do you think that these UFOs and, and the ETs, the occupants of these UFOs, are actually communicating with us or touching us at our very spiritual basis?
3: I think so, but don't forget that there are roughly forty different species interacting with us. I think they cover the gamut, and the, and the uh, some are some are good and helpful, some are not, and. Uh, they're not all of the same ilk. What do you think? Some's
2: they're. Some's they're some's what do you think, understand that. What do you think their purpose is?
3: Well, from what I can understand from uh, Robert Dean, have you heard of Robert O'Dean? Sure. From what I can understand, they have been studying us for thousands of years. It's uh, it's clear that if they have the ability to get here, that they're going to look at us like a bug under a microscope. Why not?
2: Do you think that the governments of the world are suppressing this information? And if yes, why?
3: Absolutely, it's too it's too complex for the public to digest because it touches on the whole energy problem. Because if we knew, if we reveal the contact with the UFO, we'd have to reveal the technology, and the technology has the capability of ending our dependence on any kind of fossil fuel, and they don't want that. I think that's part of it. Mm-hmm. There may be a lot more to it. I think a lot. There's also the fact that Eisenhower did come to the conclusion. Some of them were hostile. In fact, uh, Colonel Corso definitely came to
2: that conclusion. If they have the ability to traverse time and space, come here, there's 40 different species, uh, as you stated a few moments ago. Why don't they make themselves known to the masses? Why is it only a certain selected group that actually has the contact experience or the sighting experience?
3: Well, I think there's two groups. I think there's one group that likes to be anonymous, doesn't want to be known. Mm-hmm. And I think they would probably be in the hostile category. The big guys, which I which used to call the Space Brothers in the 50s, that contacted, they had to circumvent the suppression machine by going to individuals. That was the only way they could get through. So uh, that's what happened. And they knew that these people that they were contacting would spread the word for radio and television and that's what they were hoping for. So it depends. The other ones uh, wouldn't want us to know uh, because they had deals with the government and those deals would have been violated if if we had revealed their presence.
2: Why don't... Why You know, if, if there are... If there are groups of the aliens who want the public to know about it, why don't they just make a massive landing or, or do something that... that cannot be denied
3: there's no point in it because uh... probably sixty percent or seventy percent of the uh... population would just go back to work the next morning and we go back to their worries about romance and money and help and uh, that would be it so uh... they have to accomplish a very complicated agenda which i believe that's what they're trying to do and it's a long-term agenda and i think they are going to appear in mass Very soon, because that's part of their agenda. And it's a very old agenda, this revealing themselves to us. The plan goes back a long way.
2: Do you think they pose a threat to the safety of this planet?
3: Well, look, I think we've got two groups here. We do have good guys and bad guys. Mm -hmm. This is in my book. I I made that point. Uh, I think the the bad guys were lined up with Hitler and uh, the Nazis, the good guys were lined up with, the, uh, with us and with the Allies. And in my book, I do make the claim, which I believe is probably rather sensational, that there was a lot of interference in World War II. And uh-huh. so, uh, in other words, the, the war in heaven came mm-hmm. down to earth, is what happened.
2: So it's the historical fight between good and evil?
3: Well, if you look at it that way, yeah.
2: All right, stand by. You and I have to take our news break. Don't go away. Len Kasten is our guest, Exonation, www.et-secrethistory.com. And uh, Len is the author of The Secret History of Extraterrestrials, Advanced Technology, and the Coming New Race. My name is Rob McConnell. This is the Exxon, a place for people dare to believe and dare to be heard, Monday through Friday from 10 p.m. Eastern until 2 a.m. Eastern. On the Talk Star Radio Network, Exxon Broadcast Network, Star Cable, and Exxon TV, and our fine family of broadcast affiliates around the world. 1-800-610-7035, worldwide toll-free. Email exxon at exxonradiotv.com, on MSN Messenger, Radio TV at hotmail.com, and my website, www.exoneradiotv.com.
3: My name is Michael Telstar, Canada's leading mentalist from Toronto, Ontario.
0: Hi, my name is Spoonza, and you're listening to my dad, Ron
2: McConnell, on the XM. Xen-
1: this is Psychic Dorothy from St. Catharines, and you're listening to Rod McConnell.
2: Explanation: Len Caston is our guest. www.et-secrethistory.com. And uh, Len, first of all, thanks very much for joining us. Great having you with us. Uh, it's my pleasure. ETs, uh, UFOs. It it seems that more and more people are looking up to the skies uh, these days. And why why do you think so many people are are interested in UFOs?
3: Well, to me, it's become clear, abundantly clear, because uh, one of the chapters in my book is about science fiction film, mm-hmm. and the uh, the enthusiasm about science fiction film has to do with the fact that, at a deep level, we all know that we come from the stars, and it's at a deep level, it's been masked all these years. But that's the only explanation for why we love these science fiction films. It it brings it makes us understand our origins because we, I believe came from
2: somewhere else. Do you think that there's a connection between the biblical stories of of angels and Ezekiel's wheel to the to the UFO phenomenon that we're experiencing here in the 21st century?
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, they had no other ways to to express what they mm-hmm. saw, so they they made up these stories about wheels in the sky, but uh, I'm convinced that definitely was the case, yeah.
2: Why are they well, abducting people?
3: Well, you have to go back to Roswell. According to Philip Corso in his book, mm-hmm. the day after Roswell, human body parts were found on the craft. So that told him and told the army that this was not a, uh, something we wanted to just greet them with open arms. We have a whole, new, a whole new situation here. And Corso in his book says that on that morning of July 7th, we harvested them before they could harvest us. That was what he said in the book. So he believed right to the end they were hostile.
2: Do you really believe that the incident in Roswell, New Mexico, happened and it had nothing to do with any of the other theories, including Project Mogul?
3: Oh, it happened for sure. Uh, just, there are videos out there by uh, by Ed Mitchell telling us, telling everybody that it happened, and he's from Roswell. And if, he, if he's not an authoritative voice on the subject, I don't know who it would be.
2: But how come there's there hasn't been any proof that's surfaced of that that uh, has that has not come forward? That mainstream media has not jumped all over it.
3: Well, Larry King talks about it a lot. He, I think Larry King has had. Five or six programs dedicated to Roswell. Well,
2: yeah, yeah, he said programs dedicated, but still, there's never a smoking gun.
3: Well, the smoking gun was the autopsy film. There were a lot of a lot of individual things that uh, that were clearly pointed to it happening, and and the testimony of of nurses and people who saw the bodies coming into the hospital. It's a fogged suppress. The government has a way of just. Uh, just uh, mixing it all up and and uh, giving everything a black eye. They're very effective at that. They know how to do it.
2: All right, but the alien autopsy film that was proven to be a hoax.
3: No, it wasn't proven. Sand. It wasn't proven. Sure, it they was. would want us to. They would want us to believe it was a hoax.
2: Are we talking about the one by Ray Santilli, the one that he brought forward? Yeah. yeah well, that was that yeah. was exposed years ago as a hoax. There's
3: a chapter in my book about Linda Moulton Howe.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: She was in touch with a photographer named JB who admitted that he photographed three three dissections in July of that year. One was in Roswell and one was out in the plains of St. Augustine. There's plenty of evidence. You just have to look for it, that's all. It's but how,
2: But how do we know that this evidence is really being suppressed and it's not being concocted by members of the UFO community to keep something alive that puts a lot of cash into a lot of people's pockets? You know, well, there's, there's two the people, sides to the, people, the sword.
3: The people that I know involved in this research are all sincere, dedicated individuals.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: That's, that's my judgment of them. Uh,
2: you know, uh, there they are,
3: may be... Are the... a few, there are a few ponies, but that, that's my that's my estimate. People like uh, like Stanford Friedman and Linda mm-hmm. Moulton Howell and Jim Mars, these people looking for the truth, they're searching for the truth. And, uh, and uh, Richard Dolan, I have tremendous respect for these people and what they're doing. Why? I know them personally. And I, I just know that they haven't checked me. I, you know, you know this about people, and uh, that's my judgment.
2: You know, I, you know I, I've, I've, ta- I've had the pleasure of talking to Stan Friedman a number of times, uh, Jim Mars a number of times, and yet with all the research that these people do, no smoking gun.
3: Well, how, how, what would you call a smoking gun?
2: Physical evidence that could not be denied.
3: Well, you know it's so easy to to obfuscate the government is so good at this. there are three rules for the government: one is to obfuscate, one is to deny and one is to disinform uh linda Linda had that in a document she got from richard doty this is this is what they do they're very good at it
2: yes, and so, and so many are the and, just, and many so are
3: things just die a natural death you know
2: yeah, but so are the people in the uFO in uFO um uFO field in spinning their own tails like you know it's 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 it seems that people are yelling government conspiracy and government cover-up you see and there's two ways of looking at it and everybody looks at the government side instead of also looking at the side that the conspiracy could actually be be perpetrated by the ufo community because as long as they scream government cover-up government conspiracy Any proof that they cannot find, they say, well, the government's confiscated it. The government has it. We can't get it. We can't get the proof. So the legend lives on.
3: You're assuming that there's a lot of collusion among these people. Most of them don't even know each other. They do independent research. Bill Ryan, who does uh, Operation Camelot. uh, Richard Dolan has written four huge books on the subject, and he's a very respected researcher.
2: But once again wow. but once again all the all all the books that are written are based on hearsay evidence. It's it's based on a hypothesis, it's based on folklore, it's based on legend, not fact. Why can't somebody come up with a dead alien somewhere and say, "Look, here we are. Here's a dead one. Now do you believe me or or why don't they get that all that all important photograph that can't be investigated and and computer checked to see it's nothing else but a hoax or or a up picture or or CGI. Why can't? Well, would you
3: believe, would you believe uh, Colonel Corsell's rendition? Would you, I, Is he expected enough that you would believe him?
2: I don't believe anybody until I see the proof.
3: Well, he saw the alien bodies and.
2: But did you? He was, was. But did you? He was
3: a dedicated. Uh, no, I didn't. Of course
2: not. Do you believe that he saw them?
3: Absolutely. Why? Because, it's, because the man has such tremendous respect. He was in the Air Force. He was working under General Trudeau for many, many years. He had no extra mind in this.
1: Well, He, we can... wandered,
3: out before he, he wandered out before he died. He died shortly after the book was released.
2: Why didn't he come forward uh, sooner?
3: Well, these guys were all under very, very stringent security oaths. I think you know that. And Jesse Marcel, who was at the center of the Roswell incident, mm. it took him 30 years before he would talk about it to Stanton Friedman. 30 years. This was a man who was known to have, was known to be extremely reliable when it came to secrecy. He had been involved in operations crossroads in the Pacific prior to this, and the generals knew they could trust him to keep people in on it. And so he
2: did. But
3: finally, before before he died, like so many others, he mm-hmm. came
2: forward. Do you believe this story that uh, Jesse Marcel told about the Roswell incident? Yes, I do. Then he answer it. His son, his son verified it. Oh well, then 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 help me understand something here that that has been bothering me from day one and doing this show for 20 years with over 3,000 interviews, no one has been able to answer this question. If Jesse Marcel was such a good officer, such a dedicated officer, why did he, instead of going directly to the Air Force Base after retrieving alleged UFO parts, break the chain of custody, break the evidentiary chain by stopping off at his house on the way back to the base to show his wife and son what he found. That well, my, is, theory that, that,
3: yeah, my theory on that is this. I have it in my book, by the way. I interviewed his son, mm-hmm. and uh, I think what he did was he he sat down and he copied the, the hieroglyphics that he found, he, for later use.
2: But why did he not do that seen. in his office on the base? Why did he break the chain of command? Which, according to the members of the military that I have spoken to, without mentioning this specific case, nullifies any of the testimony that this soldier would have made. His credibility is shot, gone, zip, zap. And yet, everyone, when it comes to Roswell, takes this as credible even though he broke the chain of evidence.
3: Well, he, uh, he broke it only in the sense that he revealed it to his wife and son. Is that what you mean?
2: Well, he, instead of going from point A to point... That would just be like a police officer who goes on a homicide investigation, decides to take the gun home or the knife home and show his kid and his wife, let them handle it, and then go to the police station and log it in as evidence. The chain of custody has been broken. You know,
3: some subjects are so big. And this was one of them. And he knew that there was history involved here. And he, uh, that's why he did it. And after all, Colonel halt, uh told him to report it as a UFO. So um, he felt that he was not really... He was doing
2: what he needed to do for historical, for history. Oh, by by breaking the rules and regulations of the United States government. Because he thought that this was going to be of historical significance, that gave him the right as a member of the military under oath to to break the law, to break the rules. And just because it's. I'm not sure that any secrecy
3: was imposed on him at that point.
2: Well, he was a member of the United. Did,
3: all he did was a baby orders to go out and gather the the debris and bring it over to the base. Uh, did I don't any think anybody perhaps told him that it was top secret?
2: Did anybody tell him to? Is it common? Is it a common occurrence within the United States Army Air Force to go get debris, bring it home, and then go back to the base? Why didn't he just go back to the base after collecting the the uh, the debris? And
3: as I said, uh, as a witness to history, he at least wanted two witnesses. Uh, that would be his wife and his son. Two people who we know, who we knew would never reveal anything.
2: Well, isn't that called collusion?
3: You might call it that. Uh, he kept quiet for 30 years after that.
2: So why did he decide to talk? How much money did he you make
3: from to, it? Have to ask, you'd have to ask Tanton Friedman that because uh, Tantan Friedman was able to get the interview... And my feeling is that he just felt that he was going to die soon, like the others, mm-hmm. and wanted it out. He felt it was important enough for humanity to do this.
2: Okay, that's so my, that's my so, opinion. so just because he thought it was important for humanity, that gave him the right to do something that is, in the eyes of the military, wrong.
3: I don't think he viewed it that way, because he knew his son and his wife would keep quiet, So uh, he didn't think there was any danger there.
2: You know, he could have very easily taken the debris, taken pictures of it somewhere. It did. He didn't have to bring it home. And you see, this to me puts a big question mark on, number one, his integrity, his honesty, his loyalty. Because if this is how he acted, then in my opinion, he wasn't a very good soldier.
3: Well, you know, they had... He had already looked. He had already taken some of this debris and tried to crush it, and he realized it had uh, incredible uh, characteristics. They shot a bullet at it, a or six bullet at it, and it, while it was in the air, it didn't even dent it. So he had seen that, and he knew that this was something very unusual. Uh, and he felt that, as a witness to history, he won. He wanted to have backup for this story, and I'm glad he did.
2: But he, there is oh. there is no backup for it. There is nothing here because there is no evidence to support his claims. So it's his well, word. It, it's his word. This book. Listen, that doesn't mean it's real.
3: Well, you, know, you have to. You have to. You have to agree to what what convinces someone and what doesn't. You know, proof. It's uh, proof. It's a, you know, this whole this whole business of UFO is, is a very surreal game, and it's all a game of reputation. You either either have, you either establish a reputation for integrity or you do not. Many of the UFO people are known to be disinformers and everyone knows it. They're
2: known
3: to be liars. All right. So, so, you know, you have to to establish who's who and what's what.
2: And I guess it all depends on what side of the ball or side of the fence you're playing on, whether you're a believer or a skeptic. I'll be back on the other side of this commercial break as the Exxon continues from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. Don't go away. How would you try to convince someone like myself who is skeptical because there are so many people talking about UFOs being real, but there's no physical evidence. No one can bring anything to mainstream media or to members of the scientific community or, or anyone else. And it's come to the point where people just don't believe in them anymore. Listen, Len, we've got to say so long for tonight. Uh, we've run out of time. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Continued success, and um, I guess the only thing we can do is keep on keeping our eyes to the sky, because yeah, um, yep. you know, I I, 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 really don't believe it. I really don't believe it. There is no evidence, and you know what? Over the past, over the past, uh, what is it? What's it been? Nearly, uh, nearly an hour. I'm not convinced. I'm really not convinced that, based on what you've told me, that aliens are real. We've got all this hearsay. We've got these different members of the military who are coming out saying these things that they cannot, they cannot prove. And I'll tell you something. It scares me to know that they are willing, willing to, to break their oath just to try and get their five minutes of fame ...with the media. And as you can see, it's not working because mainstream media doesn't carry these UFO stories anymore because there's so much deception, dishonesty, and disinformation coming from the UFO community. And I truly believe that the people responsible for the conspiracy and the cover-up of the UFO case is not the government is not the governments of the world. It is the UFO community itself. Because once the information comes out, or even if it wasn't to come out, that, you know, let's say President Obama called a press conference tomorrow. All the media shows up, and he says, listen, this is the truth. There are no UFOs. The UFO community would not believe him. Because once they accept that there are no UFOs, the UFO community needs the government conspiracy angle to keep their game alive. My name is Rob McConnell. This is The Exxon. I'll be back on the other side of this uh, news break at six and a half minutes past the hour as we continue live and around the world from our studios in Hamilton, Ontario, Canada. And yes, as you can tell, Another one bit the dust. Ah, when will they learn? Don't come on the radio if you're not prepared. It's that simple. I'll be back on the other side of the news. Don't go away.
3: Let's go. He walks down the street with the and I'll No sound of the sound of speed.
0: Machine guns ready to go.